We are on part seven of our series on gospel community. We have had a couple messages about the centrality of the gospel. We have talked about practical, practical forms of community formation, breaking bread, hospitality, the Lord's Supper. And now we've had, this is the third message. So we'll have one more message in this series just to give you some orientation. This is the third message we have about what I'm calling the fellowship of grace. Now, we have one more message in this series. It'll be about prayer, and, our, and then we'll complete this series. And you'll get a chance to hear some other guys. Uh, Joe, our, 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 the newest member of our pastoral staff, he's going to get to preach in a couple of weeks. You'll get a chance to hear him. And I've already asked uh, Frank, who's our youth pastor, he'll get a chance to get to preach to you too, Sue. Um, he's actually quite good. <laughs> so you'll get a chance to hear him in a couple weeks too. But let me orient us a little bit on this passage. Let, let me focus on verse 44. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. These are the two verses I would like us to focus on today. The Lord did something tremendous after Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved. The early church community gathered together. And this brief description is this remarkable form of their lifestyle together. And I would like to focus on verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Goodness. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this. We've been talking about fellowship. Um, we had a message on, fe- on the fellowship of grace, which I said is that the fellowship of grace, as described here, goes beyond really our natural affinities. And here, here we're... In our day, time and day, we, we like only, we tend to only to fellowship and gather with those people that are a lot like us. They talk like us, they think like us, they tend to be a similar age to us, racial background, educational background, and interests. And we think we know whom we like to, you know, we are picky about who we like to spend our time with and all our, and, and make friends with. And this is a picture of what fellowship Heavenly fellowship, a fellowship which pours forth out of grace could look like. We're talking about people tremendously diverse. Back then, racism was just normal. This guy's a different race, different language, different uh, religion. Of of course I should hate him. (laughs) Of course he can't marry my daughter. Of course I'm not even going to sit with him or even be friends with him. And if we get a chance, maybe our group will, will kill some of them. That was just normal back then. And yet here is a form of fellowship which broke those bonds. Grace does that. We talked about that two weeks ago. And last week we talked about how there is a perfection or a completion, the goal of divine love. When God loves you, it's not just for you to receive and then you to enjoy, but that when the goal and the perfection and the completion of God's love comes into you, it pours forth out of you and it causes you to love other people in a very profound way. Now today, to wrap up this portion on fellowship, I'd like to ask you a question. To what extent God's grace causes us to be willing to be friends with people we would normally not choose? It actually causes us to sacrificially to begin to love people, and then that brings a completion of God's love. But to what extent, how far does God's love carry us? And the thing I would like to say to us today is, 
God's, you know that God's love is coming out of you when you begin to evidence a very profound, what I'm calling radical generosity. That's what we're seeing here in this text. These people, they loved each other. They were with each other so much that they were willing to sell their possessions. (laughs) They would actually sell their possessions. They would see needs in others. They would take their treasures and their possessions, sell them, make money, have that money, and give it radically for other people so they would be, that their needs would be lifted. That's what they're doing. And this would be a rare instance, this kind of a, a, a fellowship, this type of a cultural group of gathering would be rare and unusual in just about any time, in any culture, anywhere. But, um, but I think today it is probably, it's so weird to us today. We live in such a self-sufficient and I would say a very stingy time. We're pretty stingy people, although maybe, I mean, maybe our country is somewhat less stingy than other countries, cultures, whatever. Right? But on the whole, this, verse 44 and 45 is so wild. It's almost even hard for us to imagine that if we're going to imagine this, it's, it's, it seems like, it's, is this real? It seems like fiction to us because this type of lifestyle of radical generosity or a fellowship so steep with generosity that goes beyond, you know, that people are even willing to give their money in this way, it's, it seems inconceivable to us. And what I'd like to do in this message is talk about, talk about this. Number one, I'd like to ask this question of why. <laughs> why we can't live like this? Why is it that we're so, this is so wildly foreign to us? Okay? Number two, I'd like to talk about the nature of generosity itself, the longing for generosity. And then number three, I would like to talk about uh, how we get there. How the heck do we get there? We so want this, don't we? And long for this, and how are we going to get there? So let's get at this. Number one. Now, I could say to you, the reason why you won't sell your possessions and radically give of yourself, of your money, and of your treasures to other people, of your life. I mean, we don't even want to give our money, but there's, we're talking about our time, our energy, our heart, our lives. Why we don't do this is just because you're sinful. <laughs> or because you're selfish. And, but that won't be very helpful. That would be akin to saying, you're throwing up, you have headaches, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, the reason you're throwing up is because you're sick, man. <laughs> That's just be, I would just be saying... Something that, in one sense, you already know. And two, it just be a broad doctrine. And we all need to learn doctrine, but if all that's all you learn, that won't be very helpful in life. So let me give you a little bit of a, a, a sharper diagnosis here. It really does boil down to what we believe. It isn't just that there's something about me that's selfish and there's a lack of character. There's things that you believe in your mind and the way you look at the world it actually produces stinginess. It produces you unwilling to part with your money and your goods and willingness to give up to help other people out, even in great times of need. Look, you know, we live in this country, and on this day, I think it's particularly good to think about that we have this pledge to the flag, you know, one nation under God. And, you know, there's... Belief in God and what he offers has been stronger and weaker at different times in our, in our nation's history. And we're probably, you know, at one of the more weaker times in, in this history. And that could change. And hopefully the Lord will be merciful and pour out his grace and it will change. But let me offer this to you. 
If God is big in your life, what the scriptures say is that God says, what I offer to you is a heaven. And when God is big in your life, and when His heaven and His riches and what He offers to you is big in your life, then when the things aren't as good here, you don't need to hold on to things as well here. But when God isn't very big in our life, what we tend to do is all human beings long to taste of good things here in this earth. What we will then do is each of us, within our short period of time in life, whether you may think I get to live 80 years if I'm very healthy and lucky, that's not a, you know, that's a long time, but it's still a short time. Even if you live a long life, what you're going to long to do is you're going to seek to make this period of time in your life your heaven. You're going to try to make it heavenly. And in each of us, whatever we think is what makes me, my life heavenly, that's the thing you're going to prize. And then whatever you have in your life that can help you get what you long for to make your life heavenly, that you won't give up. You won't give that up. No way, because that means you're giving up your heaven. Who the heck gives up their heaven? So let me just try to put you a little bit this, to you this way. If comfort is your thing, and you want to live in a nice big house, and you want to have nice, luxurious stuff, what do you need in order to have that kind of heaven, to have your little man-made heaven? You need the money, right? You need the stuff. So, if comfort is going to be your heaven, then you won't give up the money. Hence, you'll be stingy about it. You're like, okay, well, come on. I'm not that materialistic, Pastor. How about this? What if respect is your thing? For you, your heaven and your life will be heaven if you have respect. So it gets interesting. You know, um, so for one person, their house and the goods in their house is comfort. But for another person, their house is really about respect. It's still about a house, but it's still about respect. Because when was the last time somebody ever respected somebody who lives in a cardboard box? You go on down the street, you may pity the homeless person who lives in a box, but you don't tend to respect them. And so if the thing that makes your life a little heaven is respect, people will look up to me and think I'm somebody, then, then hey, the car you drive, the house you have, and all these kinds of things, these are all signifiers of respect. These are the man-made heavens. And at the end of the days, if God won't be our guide, we have to save ourselves. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to be our own lords and our own wisdom and make our own heaven. So, and how do you get that respect? Well, part of it is back to the, the money, right? It's hard to respect somebody who got nothing, especially when it comes to the bank account. I'll throw one more example out there. And I don't want to pick it too much on you ladies, but it's the ladies who tend to care about this. You want somebody to love you. Someone to cherish you and wine you and dine you and tell you that you're beautiful. Well, let's get real. You know, it's, it's interesting. When was the last time we watched a movie and the heroine of the movie that gets wined and dined is someone who's not very pretty? It's very unusual. Right? Um, but so, ladies, if you want somebody to wine you and dine you and love you and cherish you, it does kind of tend to matter how your hair is and how your clothes are and how you dress and how you present yourself. And if you're not very good at those things or you don't naturally just shine out because you weren't born gorgeous, well, if you have a little bit of this or a lot of this, of the moolah, then it'll help you get this and then we're back to our self-made heavens, right? 
look. Here's the diagnosis. If God isn't very big in your life and the heaven he offers you isn't very much in your life, right? Then the heaven that you will chase, you will chase a heaven. Because, and all people want to experience this. And that's not bad. We were designed. We were designed to want this life to be heavenly. And this is the incredible thing that the Bible teaches is that, and we know this life is so not heavenly. Sometimes it's some heavenly little taste of it, but for the most part, there's lots, lots of boredom and even hellishness here in this earth. But because of this, something about us, we long to form order and make our life shape into something heavenly, and that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. God designed us to be this way. Otherwise, we would just be just strange rats. Be content to live in, you know, and living in garbage cans or something. But we're not. We want to order our lives into a heavenliness, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong with is that when we think we're going to do this, and we're going to be our lords and our sisters, and when God's heaven is not to us, it's only the heaven that we can make. And if that's the case, it does lead to stinginess, because all resources have to be for me. I can't give up my resource to somebody else. That would be giving up my heaven. You see? This is how we operate in our culture. So almost everything about the way our culture operates, especially what we believe and all the patterns of our economics and our relationships, we even assume with somebody else that you can't impose to ask them for help. We, we assume that nobody will ever want to be generous to you in such a way. And then, of course, we're not either. And then nobody even considers this. There's, there's something wrong here, that there's something bad here. But there is. And deep down, we know it. There's something wrong. There's something deeply wrong. And in days like this, you know, we're talking when there was great tragedy, we start to remember this, you know, this 10th anniversary of 9-11. But that's my point number one. Why we, why we can't live like this. Now, let me talk a little bit about Generosity. Let me ask you to think, do a little thought experiment here. You know, you have, you go around and hang out with certain friends. And, um, what would life be like if the community that you were involved with, if everybody you knew in that community wasn't a little bit generous, but they were incredibly generous. They were radically generous. They saw that you had a longing or a need or a lack and they would want to fill it. If they couldn't, if it self-filled, they would try to find someone else that could fill it. At least you knew they would want to fill it. They would seek to fill it. And if they could, they would actually sacrifice to do so. Imagine if you knew people like this. Do you know anybody like this? If you knew one person like this, wouldn't you like that person? How about if you knew five or six? You would, wouldn't you feel like you were a tremendously lucky person to have five or six people in your life like this? But imagine if you had a group of 20 or 50, or 100 people, and they were all like this. Wouldn't you want to be around them all the time? And it would change, it would change. It's hard, look, it's so crazy, it would change everything. And let me give you a, 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 a kind of a silly example here, but just see, uh, um, it would change so many things. It would change the way you look at your own possessions if people were radically generous to you. It would change the way you're, your response and your thinking about what you own and what you need to get from somebody else. Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm not a very materialistic guy, but one of the things that if I had, you know, significant amounts of money, I would probably own or buy is multiple cars, right? I could live in a small house, and I don't care about the clothes I wear, and some of you are like, we noticed that, Pastor, right? But, uh, but 
I would actually like to drive multiple cars. One of these days in my life, it would be nice if I get to drive a Porsche, preferably with the top down, right? Because I happen to, I like, one of my friends had a convertible when he was in high school, and the wind driving in our hair. I don't know, something about it is so dang cool, right? Except I would like to do that with a Porsche. And, you know, um, every now and then you need to haul stuff, so I would like to drive a nice truck, right? And I would like to have a van and an RV. And I, of course, I want to drive a Mercedes or a BMW because you've got to have some luxury every now and then, right? And, and, and then, of course, I would also own... So think, how many cars are there? We're talking like five or six cars already. And then I would also own a, just a normal, practical car because, because this is part of what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a person that has a kind of a mixture of humility and self-righteousness. I know that sounds, uh, I know that sounds irrational, but this is what we're like. You're all like this. You all have some mixture of some virtue, unless you're such a horrible person, you got almost no virtue, all right? But most of you have some little mixture of virtue, and upon that virtue, you think you're a good person, right? But, and then you downplay the bad side of you. But like I have a, and I'm, so I'm just being very open and honest before you. I have a mixture of humility and self-righteousness, which shows up in what I drive. And now, um, I drive a really practical, just a totally like, kind of a boring car that's just useful and that nobody would think is like cool, but nobody would think is nothing either. So I drive a 2009 Hyundai Sonata, right? And that, it's, it's like the new Honda Accord, right? It's a totally boring, practical car. And when I'm driving that car, you know, I, I drive it because like, I don't need to drive a Mercedes because I'm just a practical guy and I don't waste my money on nonsense things like that. And so when I'm driving that car, I feel good about myself because I'm more humble than these other people who feel the need to have these expensive things. And at the same time, I look down on them. And since, we, since I live in Silicon Valley, there's lots of opportunity to see people driving. You go up, you roll up, and there's a guy with a Ferrari. You know, I drive through like Saratoga or Los Altos, got the Ferrari. So I look at him like, what a loser. <laughs> Better than him, right? And of course, you don't say that out loud. It's just, it's a feeling that you have. So I would even have that car and I had all of it. But imagine if in the circle of my friends, everybody was so radically generous. I actually knew a guy who had a Mercedes and a Porsche. Would I feel the need to covet his stuff? Would I feel... Uh, a desire to save up all my money to like, I'm not going to do that, of course, I'm not going to save up my money to buy eight cars, unless, I don't know, I'm like super rich one day, which probably won't ever happen, but would I do that? Would I even care? If everybody I knew around me would say, hey, hey, pastor, hey, pastor, well, actually, he wouldn't even call me pastor, because he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it because I'm his pastor, just because he would just do it because I'm his friend. Hey, Susan, want the keys to my Porsche for like a month? <laughs> And then what if I got his Porsche and then I wrecked it? <laughs> wrecked his $100,000 convertible. And instead of him wanting to kill me and says, you owe me hundred grand, baby, instead he would say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll get another one and you can borrow that one too. <laughs> well, imagine if people were radically generous like that. It would just change you. It would change so many things, right? Now, I'm giving you a silly example. Just to sh- and I give you a silly example just to show you how one thing, your view of money and possessions, which is so radically change. But just think about this. 
We want community. And what is a mark of tremendous great community and fellowship? It's this. It's generosity. Love. Love unto real and deep generosity. That's what we would know that's really heavenly. But, you know, every now and then, you know, you, we get to experience something like this. And we all long for this, you know. Um, last night, my wife and I were, you know, my wife was watching TV. And um, I do recommend that you, there's all these shows that are on, on now this, that are remembering 9-11. Specials, the movies uh, that, that re- reenact the things. And they have these documentaries where they talk to people who were in the towers or lost a loved one. And I recommend that you, you, you watch these. You know, some are better than others, of course, but that you watch them and you remember. But one of the ones, yesterday I was watching the U.S. Open, you know, this, you know, this famous tennis tournament, and they had a segment remembering 9-11. And they talked to various people, and one of the people they talked to is, the, is one of their lead tennis analysts, Mary Carrillo. Right? If you ever watch tennis, you, you know who Mary Carrillo is. Mary Carrillo used to be a tennis player, but she's also a New Yorker. And they talked to Mary, and she was ta- remembering 9-11. And here's what she started saying. And she said, this terrible thing occurred. And yet afterwards, it became New York's finest hour. People just started doing things for each other that they never did before. It was, our, it was wonderful. It's our finest hour. And you could see the emotion just start to well up in her face. And she started to cry. Now, here's Mary Carrillo. He normally says, you know, ace, out, in. That was a good shot. Here she is, and her face, this tremendous love for her city. She said, and then she said, I don't want to be from anywhere else. I don't want to be from anywhere else. Because for that and it didn't even last a long time. For that period of time in New York, it produced such a powerful response of people that people began to sacrifice for each other. And a powerful generosity for their neighbors came out in the city. And it was so powerful that even 10 years later, Mary Carrillo, her eyes well up and they weep to remember this. Because what she experienced was community a fabulous experience of a fellowship, of something love, a fellowship of grace where radical generosity would color this fellowship and community. That's what she tasted. And do you understand? This is, this is heaven, essentially. I mean, I, I know New York's not heaven, but for a short period of time, what happened on 9-11 was horrible. I mean, there's no, there's no getting around it. The event itself was evil and horrible. But... God is amazing. He does things with this. And what came out of it was just a little tiny taste where a whole city got to treat each other with something like that was heavenly. It was actually heavenly. And some of you may be so busy chasing, you know, your, your personal heavens that you're trying to make that you're not, you're like, I don't know if it's sure, you know, you don't think too much about heaven, but I actually think about heaven quite a lot. Right? And I long... For Jesus to return, I long to taste of heaven. And part of the reason is, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I don't want Jesus to return quite yet is because there's a number of people I want to get saved. I long 
for the heavenly to come in to and break into our city and reach some of my non-Christian, unbelieving, beloved, beloved, beloved ones. But you know what I long for? I know, and I know this is going to be the case, and this is very real. When we get to heaven, everybody you know is going to be like this. Isn't that crazy? It's going to be like New York City post 9-11, nth, to the nth degree, where everybody will treat you with radical generosity. And it'll just be normal. What, can, what could that be like? And notice that even though there was great pain in New York City, people, it gives them joy to remember their response out of the city. And it makes them actually want to be more like that. And to be around, to be in a culture, to be in an ocean of radical generosity fellowship, it actually makes people happy. It gives you this well of richness inside. And this, this is what heaven's going to be like. So, you, you, you want, you're interested in the gospel? I mean, I am very interested in the gospel because partly is because I am, I so cared and so long for this heaven that the Lord has put into me. And here, right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what the Lord did was the reason scholars and the, and generations of Christians keep coming back and back and back to this text is because they look at this and going, this is so crazy. Did this actually happen here on this earth? Because what is happening is the kingdom of God is actually breaking into the world. Heaven is breaking into the world. The fulfillment of grace has occurred on the cross. Heaven is actually breaking into the world here. And it didn't last forever because the fullness of God's kingdom has not come. But this is what it's about. That the gospel is not just here. You get to go to heaven. But to make this world, the kingdom break in and help this world to become a little more heavenly till it becomes all heavenly. And radical generosity fellowship, it's, it's a big piece of it. Okay? Long for it. Seek it. And think about what type of community we could be in the light of it. Now, number three, how do we get there? Okay, pastor, wow, you just really made me want it real bad. Good. <laughs> Because I want it real bad and I want to walk with other people who want this real bad, this type of community, and pray for it. But how do we get there? We're so far from it, Pastor. I'm so far from it. There's no way. I mean, I just can't imagine me selling my stuff. I can't imagine me giving like that. Hey, look, we need to crawl before we can walk. We need to walk before we can run. And yes, we need to run before we can fly. And this is what it's going to seem like. You're like, you mean fly? This is what it sounds like. You're asking us to fly. Yes, the scripture's saying you can fly. That's what the scriptures are saying. But how do we get there? Now, let me give you, let me offer you two practical things. I'll tell you three quick stories. And close. Right. Two practical pieces of advice. One. Anytime you see somebody really live out fabulous, radical generosity, will you celebrate it? Will you remember it? Will you share it? We need to share these stories. Actually, one of the good things about 9-11 is all these stories of people who sacrificed their lives, the firemen, the people who tackled the, the, the terrorists on that one flight that, that crash-landed, I think it was in Pennsylvania. I mean... Those are incredible stories. 
And just the people who would comfort each other and said, these neighbors comforted me when I lost my son in the tower. I lost my son in Afghanistan. And, and the way the people would go out of the way, we need to celebrate this and hear this because as you just see it, it just, it, it inspires you. It fills you. It makes you happy. It makes you long. It pull, lifts you up and wants to be that way. Right? But let me offer you a second thing. Second piece of advice is, the only way you can begin to move out of your stinginess is if you put your mind on the greatest piece of generosity, radical generosity that's ever been that you could receive, and that is the gospel. That is that God made himself poor and gave himself to a set of people just so needy, right? even when we didn't deserve it. And when you feed on that and let that sink into your mind, then it starts to shape you and let you begin to see that through Jesus, his heaven starts to break into your mind and your heart. And the heaven that you want starts to become less. And then the way you hang on to your money and possessions, it won't be, the grip won't be so powerful because you're like, I, I got the real heaven. Why the heck do I need a Mercedes Benz? You know, you could just love your Hyundai Sonata, <laughs> all right? Let me tell you, um, you know, we all, we all need these stories, and we need to hear them again and again, all right? Um, because we forget. Because the default point of our heart is selfishness, is idolatry, and is stinginess. Um, this church building, I think we've had it for about five years now, four or five years. I don't know if you know, but it costs a tremendous amount of money to buy and fix this building so that we could have this worship and we can enjoy worship and fellowship here. And there are people who significantly sacrifice so that the richness of the gospel can be shared with others, their brothers and sisters, and with people who don't have it here. Let me tell you a couple of two quick stories about this. Um, the, the council, that is the elders and deacons in our church, got together and they said they realized they needed to do a campaign and ask people, please sacrifice so that people can hear the gospel and we can have a building and we could do this more effectively. The council actually was not, they were pessimistic that, you know, a certain, I can't remember the amount of money. That was, it was a huge amount of money. I think it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars that was needed for the down payment. And they were skeptical that the people would pour forth the people of our congregation, of our church, especially many and mostly in the Korean ministry, would do this. Um, but they did. Man, they did. And they didn't just kind of hit the mark. They like way, went way past the mark. Um, let me tell you two quick stories about it. One, the pastor at the time was Pastor Lee, Pastor Kyung Lee. And uh, he probably wouldn't want me to share the story, but uh, whatever. It'll embarrass him because he's, he's a humble man. He wouldn't normally, he would, certainly wouldn't brag about this. But he was sharing about this in private. Pastor Lee's not a well-paid pastor. I mean, like, you know, pastors don't get paid lots of money here. If you ever went to his house when he was living here, before, you know, he, he took a pastorate in Korea, he lived at a 1,200-square-foot house in Cupertino. It was very humble. Right? And um, when they came out here, before, shortly before they, he took the pastorate and came out here to San Jose, they had bought, made the most expensive purchase that they had ever had in their life. Before that, they had always ha drove used cars. They bought a brand new Honda 
Odyssey minivan. This was the most expensive thing they had, their possession. But when Pastor Lee came here, he realized that they needed to do this campaign so that the gospel can go forward, that the Lord, this is the Lord's will. And he wanted to sacrifice and show his people, show our congregation that the sacrifice was worthy for Jesus. But what did he have? He had his van. It was a brand new van, right? That they had saved so much to have. And he looked at it and he said, okay. He sold that van, took the proceeds from that, and gave it for so that we could enjoy this building today. Tell you another story. Same, same thing. There was a, there was a, there was a, one of the elders, he's not in our church anymore, he's he since moved away, the elder who was in charge of finance at the time. So they, had, they asked the people to sacrifice for the down payment on this building. People gave. They gave many checks. But the, and then the elder who was in charge of the finance, you know, he and the deacons were together and they gathered all these funds and they accounted them up. But there was one offering that really stood out. Right? And it was from an elderly couple in the church. Uh, this elderly couple is not well-to-do. In fact, I would say they're probably, say, lower middle class people. Right? And, the, and, when, and he, opened this, he opened this envelope, and really what it was was like a wad. It was a, it was a wad of bills all tied together. Tens and twenties, mostly. They, were, they weren't large bills. It was a wad of cash tied together, and when he counted this all up, I mean, when he just looked, he saw this thing up, it came out to $5,000. And when he saw that wad, he knew exactly what it was. He knew that it was years and years and years of saving in case they had a rainy day and they had crisis. He knew that's exactly what it was. And he looked at that wad, and it was an offering for the Lord for his church. And the elder started to weep because he knew exactly what it was. Well, Pastor Lee, he told me that story and he said, he said, what's your name? He goes, if I sat there and I saw that wad money, I think I would start crying too. I told him I would have too. People will do this when they know it's from Jesus. One more. This is from a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Terrific book. Some nerdy analysis in the book, so some of you might not like those parts, but terrific book. And he talks about all the different factors that helped this small little band of people right here in Acts chapter 2 to one day conquer a whole empire and Christianity would change a whole empire in Rome. This is what he's saying, The Rise of Christianity. How did it happen? Well, let me give you a little story of how this happened. Back in about 160-ish, there was, a tr- there was a horrific epidemic. A disease came in, and people were just dying left and right. I mean, other armies could, would come up against the Romans, and the Romans could defeat them all, but they came up against a force that they could do nothing against. It was just biological terror. People were just dying. And then in 250, about 250, another epidemic came in. And, you know, modern scholars think it, was pro- it may have been smallpox. Just horrible. Right? And people were dying. And they, they, if they estimate 
that in a given city, something like 25 to 30% of the population died. Can you imagine in a five, ten year span? Can you imagine if over the next 10 years, if in Silicon Valley, 2 million people in this county, if 500,000 people were to die? I mean, that seems almost unimaginable. A half million people were to die in, in such a short period of time. And of course, they didn't have 2 million people back then in the city, but, and you imagine living in a city of 20,000 people and 5,000 of them were to die just right before your eyes. And here's the description of how the Christians lived. Now let me first give you a description of what it was like. Then I'll give you a description of what, how the Christians responded. People were afraid to visit other people. They die with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of the dead bodies of people who had died inside them. Can you imagine if our churches were just filled with dead bodies? For the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to every rule of religion or of law. No fear of God or law of man had had a restraining influence. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing whether one worshipped them or not. When one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately, this is what it was like in the 160s and the 250s in major cities, certain major cities of the Roman Empire. Here's a letter, a quote from a letter from around 260. It's an Easter letter by one of the great pastors of the time, a guy named Dionysius. And here's the way he describes the way the Christians responded. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life supremely happy. For they were infected with other, by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Can you imagine that? Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Can you imagine? You going to nurse someone else. Their disease is deadly. Their disease might come upon you, but you for the chance to nurse them, you may die if they get to live. People did it. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, which are, called, which are like elders, deacons and laymen, winning high commendations, so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. He's saying, people want to go and die for Jesus and suffer for him? How about if they would go suffer for the Jesus before them, the least of these, their brothers and sisters? radical generosity of their lives themselves. They did it. And listen to this part. Many in nursing and curing others 
transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? He looked at a people that were so poor inside and our disease of selfishness and stinginess and idolatrous heaven-making And he came down and he transferred our disease upon himself and he died in our stead so that we could get the real heaven and we could get his radical generosity and we could get life. Brothers and sisters, feed on the gospel and love each other. Love others. And ask, you dare ask, the Lord would give you steps this gospel, it gives you such a powerful drink of this gospel that steps toward radical generosity will come out of our lives and we would taste a little bit of heaven here on earth. Let's pray. We're so not like this, Lord. And yet, you would take upon our disease and die for us. Oh, have mercy on us. And pour out your grace on us. Pour out your radical generosity on us, Lord God. And do this to us, please. Do this here at New Hope Church. Do this to the people in this very room. Do this to us, will you, please? And instead of a cynically going, oh, that'll never happen, or cynically without faith thinking that can happen. Instead, will you shock us? Will you amaze us? And just as the early church, you would put awe upon our souls and you would put a fellowship full of grace and radical generosity in our hearts and we would know that the heavenliness of Jesus has come and broken into our lives, Lord. Please, I know it pleases you that we would ask these things. Lord, I confess to you my faith is weak. I believe, but I don't believe. Because I'm such a product of our stingy, and I have lived habits of stinginess throughout my life. You change us and do a great thing in me and in us. I pray this in Jesus' name.